0: Log Talk
1: Radio. The Bible, yeah, that's the book for me. The Bible, yeah, that's the book for me.
2: Really, and that Stirring starting off right. And now I'm gonna start the lesson. This is from John MacArthur, and it is called "Salvation Is for the Destitute." Here on Truth Be Told Radio, check us out at truthbetoldradio. dot com. Radio dot com.
3: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled, 15 Words of Hope, by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
4: We're doing a series, I'm not sure how long it will go, but we're looking at conversations with Jesus during his life and ministry. And one of the ones that is most fascinating and definitive is found in Luke 4. So you can open your Bible, if you will, to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at starting at verse 16 in just a few moments. A number of years ago, I was asked a question actually by a rabbi who asked me, If people know the facts about Jesus Christ, why don't they acknowledge Him as Savior? What causes people to resist that? And just recently I had a similar conversation with someone who said, when people know the truth, why is it that they don't receive Christ as their Savior? Really, that comes down to one great reality, and this passage will reveal that to us. Some people would say people need more information, and and that's true. You have to have the revelation of God. You have to have the truth. You have to have the biblical gospel. Others would say people need more proof. They, They need some kind of defense for the veracity of the claims of the gospel. Others would say, well, what people really need is to know that God loves them, and if we just keep telling them over and over and over and over that God loves them, uh, that's going to kind of win them over on the sheer basis of the force of His love. Or we can approach people and say, look, your life will be a whole lot better if you come to Christ, you'll be happier, you'll be fulfilled, you'll have purpose, you'll be satisfied. And while there's an element of truth in those things, they're not really the issue. And because we don't necessarily understand the foundational issue in gospel ministry, we really don't know how to do evangelism the biblical way. So we're going to to go into this story of Jesus, and He's going to lay it out for us so that we know what the foundation of all evangelism really is. And that's going to be clear to you, I trust, in a few minutes. So we come to Luke chapter 4, and Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown. He had lived there until he was 30 years old and began his ministry. So Nazareth is the town that he was familiar with, relatives, friends, neighbors. Everybody there knew him, knew him well. It was a very small place. Everybody knew who this carpenter's son was. But this day that we find in Luke 4 shakes up their understanding of Christ to such a degree that they actually make a concerted mob effort to kill him, to throw him off a cliff. And if you ask the question, how could it get to that, you're asking the right question. How is it that his friends and neighbors, people that knew him best, over thirty years they didn't know that he was God or the Messiah, but they certainly were exposed to the perfection of his nature and character. How is it that in one day they can try to throw him off a cliff? Well, you're going to find out. Look at verse 16. He's in Galilee now, and this is part of his Galilean ministry. This is where he begins his year and a half ministry in Galilee, having returned there. And he's operating, verse 14 says, in the power of the Spirit, news about him is spreading all through the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So things looked initially very good. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And this is the most familiar place to him. And uh, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now that would be a routine thing, he would have done that uh, since his childhood, faithfully every Sabbath. He would have gone to the synagogue with his family. Synagogues were essentially a house of instruction, they're very much like a church, it's not a temple, it's not a a place where sacrifices are made, it's just a gathering place for the explanation of Scripture, instruction from the Old Testament. And the way they basically ordered that was they had a a set prescribed pattern of reading the Old Testament. And in fact, in a typical synagogue service, there would be seven readers who would read a portion of the Old Testament and make some comment. And following those seven, there would be a final one who sort of gave the major address. And the final one was called a maftir, and his responsibility usually was to do an exposition from the set reading of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And that is what is happening as we open the door to the synagogue in Nazareth. On this occasion, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. This is the first time that we know of that Jesus actually took an official position in the synagogue as a reader, which meant He would read the prescribed passage and He would give an exposition of that passage. And since He is given the text of Isaiah, verse 17 says the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him, this is very likely that final message after the seven had gone on with their discussion of the Old Testament, this is the culminating message from the prophets and particularly from the book of Isaiah. In actuality, the text for this particular Sabbath was Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And that is a Messianic text. That is a Messianic text. So Jesus is handed the scroll and stood up to read it, and reads the prescribed passage, and this is what it said. Verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now this is a messianic text. In fact, you can see it's in the first person, even in the book of Isaiah. So the Messiah Himself is speaking of His own ministry to come. And He says it will be in a ministry with the anointing of the Spirit of the Lord. And then Jesus in verse 20, closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is beyond shocking. He is saying, I am the Messiah. We know that He was under the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, we see that earlier in His ministry. We see it in His baptism. We see it when the Spirit of God comes upon Him, empowering Him for ministry. Like chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Down in verse 14 again, the power of the Spirit is operating through Him. Jesus is simply declaring what has already been demonstrated. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This again is messianic. And since the Messiah has come, And since He has come with the good news, you notice that, the gospel, verse 18, this then is the favorable year of the Lord. This is the year when the Lord deposits His great favor on the world. The age of salvation has come. The Savior has come. The spiritual jubilee has arrived. The long-awaited kingdom is here. This is beyond comprehension for the people of Nazareth, who know this man, who have known him his whole life, and know him only to be the man that he was, fully human, truly human. And now this same man, so familiar to them in this small village, stands up and declares that he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah's great prophecy, and that he has arrived with the good news, and he is the one who is declaring now that he is present, the favorable year of the Lord has begun. The age of salvation is now launched. I am the Messiah, and this is the day of salvation, is his message. I mean, it's a beyond stunning thing for him to say. They 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 have no reason to believe that He's the Messiah. None. He didn't do miracles in the first 30 years of His ministry. He had done them recently nearby in Capernaum and the surrounding area. And He had done a wonderful miracle at a wedding in Cana. And there was a lot of reporting about the miracles that He did down in the south around Jerusalem. But it's still a huge leap for them to look at this very familiar young man and to all of a sudden believe that he's not who they thought he's always been, but rather he is God's anointed King and Messiah. And part of the problem for them was that he had such humble beginnings. He didn't come from Jerusalem, he wasn't from a famous family, he wasn't well known, he wasn't a rabbi, he wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a Pharisee or leading scholar. He wasn't part of the religious establishment. And so it just seems beyond belief that he's referring to himself and says, this prophecy has been fulfilled today in your hearing. Now the eyes, it says in verse 20, of the whole synagogue were fixed on him because they wanted to hear what he said. He stood up to read, he sat down to speak, and he gave them an exposition of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and no doubt comments on chapter 58, verse 6, which is the favorable year of the Lord. You don't have the message there. We just have the text that he used from the Old Testament, but this, this text was just the beginning And it says he began to say to them, verse 21, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, because he probably had much more to say beyond that. But I'm not sure they could have gotten past that. Nonetheless, when he gave the sermon, it's interesting, verse 22 gives you their initial response. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. That's not surprising. That's not shocking. No man ever spoke like this man was a comment made about him. It's not shocking that he was the greatest speaker they had ever heard. He was more cogent than any other speaker, more accurate than any other speaker, more clear than any other speaker, more passionate than any other teacher that He was literally riveting them to the subject that He was addressing of the arrival of the Messiah and the Gospel. What they were hearing from His lips, they'd never heard from anyone. And in verse 22 it says, And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? How can we make the move from somebody we know so well, who is Joseph's son, local carpenter's son, who himself was a carpenter and a builder. How do we move from that to this is the Messiah? How do we do that? Now, I want you to go back to verse 18 and understand the message. The good news comes to a certain group of people. He anointed me to preach the good news or the gospel to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. I have to tell you, that passage, and they knew it well from Isaiah, was both an announcement and an indictment. He was bringing good news not to the spiritual elite, not to the people who thought they were righteous, not to the people who thought they knew God, not to the people who were the rulers and leaders of the synagogue, but rather the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to preach the gospel to the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. Now, all of those people would be those that were cursed by God in in their system of suffering. So the Messiah arrives and, quoting from Isaiah 61, declares that He has brought good news, but it's not good news for the self-righteous. It's not good for the spiritual elite. It's not good news for those who think they've earned their standing with God. It's good news to the poor, prisoners, blind, and oppressed. And here you meet the foundational reality that you must understand in all evangelism. Before you start talking about God-loving people, and that's, that's certainly true, before you get caught up in talking about evidence of the truth of Scripture, but before you get into the technical realities of forgiveness and justification and all of that, there is, there is a first point that has to be established before the good news can be brought to any person. And it is this, are you among the poor, prisoners blind and oppressed? That's where it all has to begin. That's why no amount of God loves you, God loves you, Jesus loves you, He loves you just the way you are, while that is true to some degree, not totally true, that's not where evangelism begins. It begins with what's wrong with you. And this is how we have to view the unsaved not as wonderful people who need just to be loved or to be told that God loves them or to be given more evidence or to hear apologetic defenses of the truth. All evangelism begins with the recognition that the only people for whom this is going to be good news are the destitute people, the poor, prisoners, blind, and oppressed. And those are spiritual pictures of the human condition. This is how you have to view the unconverted people in the world. Let's look at those four just briefly. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, so this is the work of the Spirit through him. He's preaching the good news, but he's preaching, first of all, to the poor. Not the materially poor, the spiritually poor. The spiritually poor. The word here is tokos in the Greek, and it basically means to shrink, cower, or cringe like a beggar. In other words, this is utter and complete destitution. He has good news for the people who are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually destitute, reduced to begging in shame in the shadows, spiritually speaking. It's not the normal word for poor. That's another word that means someone who has a little. This is one who has nothing. This is the level of being a beggar. This is the kind of poverty that our Lord spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you start with a recognition of your utter bankruptcy spiritually. Nothing to be proud of, nothing to be confident in, nothing to offer God, no achievements. He is looking rather for the humble and broken people, Isaiah 66. And as Psalm 51 says, he's looking for the broken and contrite heart. All evangelism begins with this point. The good news is only good news if you understand the bad reality of the condition of the sinner. The sinner is helpless under the law of God, has nothing with which to commend himself to God. Spiritual poverty. Secondly, Sinners are described as captives, prisoners, literally prisoners of war, in exile, waiting execution. He sent me to proclaim release, Ephesus can mean forgiveness. Forgiveness to the captives, to set the captives free. Messiah comes to those who know they are spiritually destitute to those who know they are prisoners to sin and Satan and death and hell. And He brings the good news of forgiveness and deliverance, liberation and freedom. Jesus is the spiritual liberator. As the hymn writer said, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. So the poor and the prisoners, those who understand their bankruptcy And the dire conditions from which they cannot extract themselves spiritually are the ones for whom this is good news. And a third illustration of the unconverted, a a recovery of sight to the blind. This is another way to describe unconverted people. They are blind. Sinners, all of us, are naturally blind, Ephesians 4.18. We are darkened in our understanding. That's natural blindness. We are satanically blinded. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded our minds, lest the light of the gospel should shine to us. We are personally blinded, Romans 1, because we fail to live up to the light and we literally compound our blindness by our rejection. And we are even judicially blinded, as you see in Isaiah 6 and in John 12 and Romans 11, that God has blinded their eyes so they cannot see. It's a four-dimensional blindness. Naturally blinded, judicially blinded, satanically blinded, personally blinded. And that's why it says in 1 John that unbelievers walk in darkness. And John 3 says they hate the light. So the Messiah has come to those who know they are spiritually blind. Jesus came and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, God has literally shed his light on us through the glory that is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9, You are a people, a people of God, whom He has called out of darkness into His marvelous light. So again, when you're talking about how you begin the gospel, you start with whether a person understands the condition they're in. Poor, imprisoned, and blind. And that's not all. The fourth one is, to set free those who are oppressed. This uh, sometimes is translated downtrodden. Those who are under the massive weight and burden of their blindness and their sinfulness and their bondage. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, we looked at it a few weeks ago, come unto me all you who are weary and what? Heavy laden. You're carrying around an oppressive burden. Poor prisoners blind and oppressed by sin and guilt. And they have no power to deliver themselves from this complete condition. So Messiah comes to bring riches, spiritual riches to the poor, forgiveness to the sinners, light to those who are blind, and liberation to the oppressed. That's why Messiah came. And that is why it's the favorable year of the Lord. So the message that our Lord is giving is salvation. That's why He stops halfway through Isaiah 61.2. He doesn't give the last half of that verse because the last half of Isaiah 61.2 says, the day of vengeance of our God. Well, that's future. This is not the day of vengeance. This is the day of salvation. What an amazing, amazing, really incomprehensible morning that Sabbath was in Nazareth. Not only because He had declared Himself to be the Messiah to people who knew Him very well, but because He had essentially said, everything you are counting on before God is absolutely useless. You are not spiritually rich. You are not spiritually free. You are not spiritually sighted. You are not spiritually delivered. You are poor prisoners, blind and oppressed. This is very offensive to them. Because they, they, they bank everything in their life and eternity on their self-righteousness. This, this is a diagnosis that they, they can't accept. But initially, their response is they were speaking well of him, verse 22, and wondering at the gracious words falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. In other words, if, uh, if you're really who you say you are, prove it. Prove it. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. Capernaum is 20 miles away. And Jesus did massive miracles in Capernaum. So they're saying, you don't expect us to believe that you, this familiar son of a carpenter, or the Messiah fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. You're you're just the carpenter's son. So if you want us to believe you, you're going to have to repeat the miracles. You're going to have to do them here for us. They could not gainsay the fact that his teaching was impeccable, that his articulation of the truth was unparalleled, that he had a holy and pure passion for that truth, flawless reasoning, accurate interpretation, linguistic dexterity and clarity. They they couldn't argue with whatever it was that he said in the sermon. But the fact that he claimed to be Messiah is beyond the possibility of their understanding. So if you want us to believe it, do some miracles. Well, he had already done miracles even in nearby Cana, turning water to wine, everybody knew. Nobody denied His miracles. But they're assuming that um, the problem they have in accepting Him is Him, not them. He's got to make more evidence visible. It's not their fault that they don't believe in Him. And to some degree, Jesus understands that. In verse 24, He concedes He said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. It's really hard to see your hometown person as somebody very significant. That's kind of an axiom. That's just a truism. If you know somebody in a familiar way and that person is not at all special, it's hard for you to imagine that... They're the noblest person who ever walked the earth, the Messiah of God. So Jesus concedes that it's, it's hard to see somebody familiar to you in a different way. But Jesus knows what's going on. They want proof. Proof isn't the issue. They have to recognize their spiritual condition as poor, prisoners, blind and oppress. How is he going to get that across to them? He's going to tell them two familiar accounts from the Old Testament. One, a story of Elijah, and the second, a story of Elisha. And they make the main point. Look at verse 25. Here's how he gets to his point. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. This, this is powerful. They're very familiar with that story. Days of Elijah, 850 B.C., the days of Ahab and Jezebel, the worst rulers in Israel. And at that time, there were many widows, many widows. And they were needy widows. Why? Because there was, according to verse 25, a great famine coming over the whole land. The famine was produced because there was no rain for three years and six months. There were lots of destitute widows in Israel. But God didn't do anything for them. Look at verse 26. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. This is a distasteful story for them. God doesn't send a prophet to any hungry widow in Israel during the time of judgment. Why? Because Israel was under judgment for idolatry with Baal. Baal worship. So Israel's is under judgment. And what does God do? He sends the prophet not only to a Gentile, but to a Gentile woman who's a widow. This is crushing to Jewish pride, Sidon, Gentile territory, Zarephath, a Phoenician city, the home of the godless father of Jezebel, whose name was Ethbaal, because of his attachment to Baal. means Baal is alive. He was a wicked man who had murdered his predecessor and was a priest of false gods. The famine affected the Gentile area as well as the area of Israel. And God sends His prophet to deliver a widow, but this widow is not a Jewish widow. This widow is a Gentile woman who would be the lowest of the low. And there's a reason for telling that story. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll just look at it very briefly. It's a fascinating story. 1 Kings 17, so Elijah, the word of the Lord comes to him, and it says in verse 8 of 1 Kings 17, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, just as Luke says, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there for... Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you." This is a Gentile area. He goes to Zarephath, he finds a widow gathering sticks. He calls to her and says, Give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. That's kind of a rude approach, don't you think? This is a widow in a famine picking up sticks, and he's asking her for water. And it gets even worse. As she was going to get it, she she responded in kindness. He called to her and said, Oh, by the way, while you're at it, bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for Me and My Son that we may eat it and die." Obviously, she knew about the God of Israel as your God, the Lord, lives. She says, all I have is enough for one more meal with My Son. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go, do as you have said, make me a little bread cake from it first, bring it out to me, afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. What an amazing promise." you put your trust in Me, you do what I tell you to do, and you'll never lack flour or oil again. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. She and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which He spoke through Elijah. This is the point. If you want proof... You have to give everything to the Lord. That's the point. This is a widow who had only enough for one meal. And she had to d- divide that up and give a portion to the prophet. Based upon a promise. The prophet said, do this and you'll never lack. That's a picture of what the Messiah is offering. I'm offering you everything you will ever need. I'm offering you salvation in its fullest sense. The question is, are you willing to trust Me? You won't see the miracle until you make the sacrifice. Did you get that? You won't see the miracle until you make the sacrifice. And then, if you make the sacrifice, put your trust in Me, God will bless you. Did he ever? Verse 17 says, her son became sick, so severely sick that he died. And she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. took the child down, verse 23, gave him to the mother and said, Your son is alive. And the woman said, Now I know that you're a man of God, and the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. The proof only came when she made the sacrifice. Rather than looking for the miracle, reach out for the salvation that the Messiah offers, and the miracles will follow. If you're wondering whether Jesus can save, whether Jesus is the savior and trust your life to him the proof will be immediate and clear she has nothing this is desperation this is a poor prisoner blind and oppressed she's got nothing but a handful of oil and a handful of flour to mix together into some dough to bake a last meal and then die But what's she got to lose? If she gives some to the prophet, maybe she dies a half hour sooner or a few hours sooner. But she's still going to die. She really doesn't have a choice. She has no way to preserve her life or her son's life. The only thing that made sense was to trust the word of the Lord through the prophet. This is the spiritual condition of people for whom the gospel is good news. And God blessed her faith, and he always does. You'll never know the truth about the gospel until you know the Savior of the gospel. And the Lord wasn't through. He had another story to tell. An equally disturbing one from their standpoint. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed. Many widows in Israel, none of them received help from a prophet. Many lepers in Israel, this dreaded disease, none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. This is now we're in the time of Elisha, about 50 years later, 60 years later. And this is a Gentile. This is an enemy. This is a warrior. This is a soldier. This is a commander who attacked Israel. This is a commander who killed the Jewish people, who took them captive. 2 Kings 5 tells his unforgettable story. Naaman, captain of the army, great man, highly respected, valiant warrior, but he was a leper, outcast. And there was a little girl from the land of Israel who was serving Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. She, she believed the prophet could heal her pagan master's leprosy. Well, he's going he's gonna to make sure that that happens if it can. In verse 5 of chapter 5, he takes off for Israel and for the king. He's got 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold. Ten changes of clothing. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to buy his healing. doesn't work that way. The king was frightened by this offer. Thought he was setting him up for some kind of disastrous attack. To make the long story short, Naaman gets to the prophet Elisha, verse 9. Came with his horses and chariots, stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying he didn't even go out. He just sent a servant out. This very important man. Go wash in the Jordan seven times. Somebody titled that sermon one time, Seven Ducks in a Dirty River. That's that's what he was asked. Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you'll be clean. He didn't even go out to meet him. Naaman was furious went away, thought, he'll come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He, he, need, he needed a whole lot more fanfare than a messenger telling him to go dunk himself seven times in the muddy Jordan. That was humiliating. What's wrong with the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus? Couldn't I wash in them? So he turned and went away in a rage. He was not yet willing to understand his bankruptcy, destitution, and hopelessness. He had to humble himself. Well, his servants came to him in verse 13 and said, If the prophet had asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it. How much more than when he says, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. In verse fifteen, he said, "There is no god in all the earth; only the God of Israel." Sinners have to be humbled; they have to be brought low. At first, Naaman was not willing to humble himself, but he later realized better to be humble and live than be proud and dead. Again, salvation is for the destitute who have nowhere to turn and they can't buy it. It comes as a gift. It comes as a gift. So Jesus ended that exposition with those two Old Testament accounts. Notice how the people responded. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. He had just destroyed their works righteousness system. Their system of you earn your way to God's favor. He had just devastated that. They were furious. So they went from being impressed in verse 22 to being angry in verse 28. And they got up from their seating in the synagogue, drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They were so offended at the idea that God saves poor prisoners, blind and oppressed, that God ignored Israelite widows and Israelite lepers and saved a destitute Sidonian woman and a Syrian warrior, Gentiles both. They hated that. That's why Jesus said He did not come to save the righteous, because this is what the righteous do with the gospel. It makes them angry. Verse 30 very simply says, he, passing through their midst, he went his way. He disappeared before they could throw him off the cliff. The Lord has always saved the people who are most des- desperate. The reason people don't come to Christ is because they refuse to see themselves in their true sinful condition. It's fine to talk about the love of Christ, it's fine to talk about apologetics, it's fine to give them more information on theology of the gospel. The big issue is are they willing to be humiliated, to be shamed, to be humbled? And do they have enough faith to give that faith to the Lord? And let him prove himself. Put your trust in Christ. You want to find out if Christianity is true? Cry out to the Lord to save you. You'll find out really fast. You won't need a book on apologetics. Our Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You for the living and abiding Word of God. Now bless us as we share around this table together.
3: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
5: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com That's S M I L E S A N D S T U F F dot C-O-M com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
6: Who has a biblical worldview? This is Ken Ham and we've launched the video streaming platform of Answers TV. Seventy percent of Americans claim to be Christians, and yet only six in one hundred have a biblical worldview. This means that many Americans grew up going to church or in families that identified as Christian, but an actual biblical worldview was never passed along to them. Based on my experience in Christian ministry for over 40 years, I'm not surprised. Many families and churches teach children a few Bible stories with a focus on a moral lesson, rather than helping them understand God's word as the authority and foundation for our thinking in every area. The story approach to the Bible has been disastrous, as we'll see all this week.
0: Plan your visit to the Art Encounter and Creation Museum when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at answersradio.com.
7: Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. All young God made
1: me and you, sing, children. No.
7: So we all have yeah. a different story. God made, us. God made me and you. Yeah, yeah. God made me and you. For our joy, y'all. For
8: our joy. Yeah. And for His glory. For glory. God made me and you. Yeah, yeah. God made me and you. Uh, come on. Just is two smooth are never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go.
1: We all have different We all different. God made me and you. God made usself. God made me and you. Yeah, yeah.
8: For our joy and for his glory. glory. Um. God made me and you. Yeah, yeah. God made me and you. cross we see what God's love is about there's no type of person that Jesus left out because Jesus died and rose from the grave all those who trust in the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation chapter number seven the church from all times is gathered in heaven each tribe and people language and nation all thanking God for the gift of salvation together forever with saints of all kinds through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine this is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you let's Let's go. No, we all
1: have an
7: different colors and different shades all differently and wonderfully made to each the glory of God display God
1: made me and you
7: for all about you all are lost all of great need for the cross Jesus died rose and paid the cross God made
2: me and
7: you different colors and different shades all differently and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you so all about you, all are lost All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose,
6: and paid the cross God made me and you A customized worldview This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on the Bible's reliability and authority Yesterday we learned that very few Americans have a biblical worldview So what do the rest of Americans believe? Well, a recent study found that most Americans blend ideas from a variety of belief systems to create a customized worldview. In other words, the dominant worldview in America today is syncretism. It's a little of this and a little of that blended into a worldview that's custom-made by each person. With such a worldview, there's no ultimate authority. Truth is determined by whatever seems right to each person. This explains the moral relativism permeating the West. Without the ultimate authority of God's Word, anything goes.
2: There's
0: so much more to learn when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again or subscribe for free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
6: hates syncretism this is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's word and the gospel this week we're looking at the worldview held by the majority of Americans and in general this worldview is customized by one made up of a little of this and a little of that it's syncretism and sadly this isn't unique to those outside the church many professing Christians take elements of man's pagan religion of our age like evolution and millions of years and mesh it with scripture. And then we wonder why so few Christians have a biblical worldview. But God hates syncretism. He punished the Israelites for mixing the worship of the true God with pagan rituals. He wants us to believe His Word, all of it, and start our thinking with truth.
0: Find out more about God's Word, thinking biblically, and building a biblical worldview at AnswersRadio.com. And enjoy the rest of this series at AnswersRadio.com.
9: Blessed
10: assurance Jesus is my
1: Yeah.
6: And light? This is Ken Ham, founder of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. This week, we've seen that many Christians don't have a biblical worldview. Instead, they believe a little bit of this and a little bit of that, gathered from all over. Now, worldview matters. How you view the world determines what you do, and even what you value. And a worldview that isn't firmly anchored to the truth of God's word is ultimately going to shift along with our culture. Such a Christian can't be salt and light. It's like what Jesus described in the book of Matthew. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, it's no longer good for anything. If we want to be salty, we need to know the Bible and be equipped with answers.
0: Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free for all of 2023. So bring the whole family. Plan your trip at AnswersRadio.com.
6: You need a biblical worldview. This is Ken Ham, and we produce the popular Answers Bible Curriculum. What you believe determines what you pass along to your children. And sadly, only 2% of U.S. parents with young children have a biblical worldview. And why does that matter? Well, you can't give what you don't have. This is why we're seeing such godlessness among the younger generations 98 out of every 100 parents can't give their children a biblical worldview even if they wanted to because well they don't have one to give but you can develop a truly biblical worldview and pass it along to your children but it starts with one key thing read your bible all of it beginning with genesis
0: There's so much more to learn when you go to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com.
1: the emblem
3: Are you good enough to go to heaven? Let's see. Have you lied, stolen, blasphemed, or looked with lust, which God sees as adultery? If you have, then you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer at heart. And if you are guilty, you will end up in hell. But God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you and defeat death. You broke God's law, but Jesus paid your fine. God can now legally dismiss your case. Repent, trust in Jesus, and God will give you everlasting life. NeedGod.com
11: made you? God made me. What else did God make?
12: All things.
11: Why did God make all things?
12: For his glory.
11: How can you glorify God?
12: By loving him and doing what he commands.
11: Where do you learn how to love and obey God?
12: In the Bible.
11: What's the Bible?
12: God's Word. God's Word. God's word. God's
11: Is there more than one God?
12: No, there is only one God.
11: And how many persons does this one God exist?
12: Three persons.
11: Who are the three persons?
12: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
11: Where is God?
12: God is everywhere.
11: Can you see God?
12: No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me.
11: Who were our first parents?
12: Adam and Eve.
11: What did Adam and Eve do?
12: They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God.
11: Why did God send Jesus into the world?
12: To save his people from their sins.
11: What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins?
12: He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. From the grave. From the grave.
11: What did Jesus do after he rose from the grave?
12: He ascended into heaven.
11: Where is Jesus now?
12: He is seated at his father's right hand.
11: And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age?
12: He's going to come back and judge the world.
11: What must a person do to be saved?
12: Believe in the gospel.
11: What is the gospel?
12: The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection.
11: And how is a person saved?
12: By God's grace alone.
11: And what is grace?
12: God's kindness to the undeserving.
2: corrupts people. Right. And so there's a reason that the Bible calls for a plurality of elders. It's not supposed to just be one guy calling the shots and everybody's submitting for this one person. The Bible's very specific about who is qualified to lead the church. Right. Um, which, you know, I think most of us have read through those verses and have them tucked away I don't understand one of the things I've looked back and reflected upon and and see a lot of times in these these stories is that when and I I include myself I want to say that that a lot of my healing journey has not only been Um, studying and and learning and getting information about what was I, what was done to me or what, what did I just walk through, but also what was in me? What have Mm. I, what was my contribution to it? I mean, Mm. I was there 23 years. Oh, I, you know, there was a long line of people that went before me. Yeah. Which was part of what my husband and I discovered after was, oh my gosh. Oh, all those people that were there one day, gone tomorrow, you know, I yeah. wonder if they had the same thing. And we actually did go back and talk to mm-hmm. as many people as we could remember, you know, or, you know, sometimes I went alone. We went together sometimes and to ask for forgiveness mm. because there was, you know, not that there was an intentional disregard, but we were part of a culture that, them for dead so to mm-hmm. speak you know sometimes my words are you know sound, yeah. but this is how you feel you know, yeah. you feel that you've been discarded by the very community that you thought loved you yeah. and and then when no one comes looking for you you just don't know how that feels till it mm-hmm. happens and then when you know how it feels you want to go ask everybody you can for forgiveness mm-hmm. like oh my gosh I can't believe I didn't yeah. just come to find out but um Back to the biblical leadership thing is that, I mean, I knew all along that there were requirements for biblical leaders because I, you know, one thing I studied, and you can always feel free to help me if I'm off here, which I love about our friendship because <laughs> you're, you're so articulate and so well studied. I When we first met, I just remember just feeling like I was just running after you, you Say I read this great book and I want to read it. <laughs> anyway, I just love your friendship. I, I mm. just want to say that. Same. Um, but um, I knew that there were biblical qualifications. Preaching over, yeah. You know. We we begin to, you know, we we disregard character as if it doesn't matter. We look at what is going on on a pulpit and we think about what's being said, which sometimes spiritually abusive situations. Oftentimes, what's being said is actually right or mm-hmm. close to right, right. like Mark Driscoll. A lot of times would say things that you know yeah. what biblically I could agree with you. Yeah. But we're, we're disregarding the behavior. We're, and, but what I love about the biblical qualifications for leadership is it includes both. Yeah. It talks about sound doctrine and it talks about behavior. But we think, I don't know why we do this in the church. Why do we think that leaders deserve a longer rope? Mm-hmm. Like we should just justify all their sins. Mm-hmm. Because why? Because they have their good you know, rhetorical skills or mm-hmm. they've got a huge platform. Um, when, with the cult of personality, I think cult that of our culture is, I mean, that's not just in the church, it's everywhere. It's like yeah. you, you, you find the personality yeah. that is, you know, going to represent you. It, it promotes tribalism and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, um. It's definitely a problem, and it's not love when yeah. you think about it, okay to give your pastor or your leader all this rope to keep sinning and being even just being a jerk. Yeah. you know I remember love? defending him. I remember yeah. because he he would say things sometimes um that even from the pulpit that mm-hmm. in my heart, I was like, that's not Christ like, mm-hmm. but I would excuse it because i would I would say, oh well, Peter always was put this I mean Peter hacked off the guy's ear right, right? you know right. he's a Peter yeah and you you make but but we have to Peter was not that guy when he was after the resurrection right. after the Pentecost right. Peter wasn't the guy that hacked off the guy's ear anymore right you know and so we sometimes you know don't make those connections and it's not that God holds elders to a standard of perfection right but there's a general character qualification mm-hmm. and I mean there. well I'm, how about I read some of these because there are some very interesting qualifications for biblical leaders I don't think people often consider yeah very well so this yeah. is Titus 1 5 through 9 and Titus says uh this is why I left you in Crete so that you might Put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. So these are going to be like what we would call pastors. These are the people that are going to be leading the church. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, Mm -hmm. but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he's to uphold orthodoxy Mm -hmm. and teach biblical doctrine correctly and marry that with a pretty, I mean, it's not like that high of a level of character. Right. You know that his home's in order, that he's not verbally abusing people or flying mm-hmm. into rages. He's not given to you know being a drunk or mm-hmm. or any of that stuff. I mean, it's it's not even that high of a standard. You know, right. it's not like he has to you know fast five times a week. Or right, eight. right. First um, Timothy three one through seven. This is Paul. Uh, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Mm -hmm. And then this last one is uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, and this is an exhortation to the elders. Uh, I exhort the elders among you uh, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And, and I, love, I love that we have this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why and so often we, we see this Moses model mm-hmm. of leadership where it's uh, it's one person who kind of calls the shots. And as long as that, you know, it, it might be working okay in a mm-hmm. church where the person is really submitted to the Lord and is humble and has all these things. But um, as we know, power corrupts people. Right. right. And so there's a reason that the Bible calls for a plurality of elders. It's mm-hmm. not supposed to just be one guy calling the shots and everybody's right. submitting to this one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, it, it's sad that in so many churches we don't follow these guidelines. Mm-hmm.
1: mm mm-hmm.
7: As long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that be?
10: Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change, forever you reign, you remain the same, you will never change, you will never change, beautiful, beautiful, you never change. Beautiful, beautiful You never change, never change
2: all I got for Troopy Toll Radio. Remember, check us out at truthbeatrollradio.com Radiocom. and this is Yanti and Friends with the V.I. Bailey. Until next time, bye for now. The
9: v. I. V.